Would you open your Bibles to the book of Galatians? It's a New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul, and if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you in the book rack in front of you, you'll find that on page 975. It's a New Testament book, as we sometimes refer to the two major portions of the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Galatians 5, Paul is writing a letter that includes another one of the one another's. Let me just review very briefly the one another's we've covered so far. Remember, we began in John 13 and 15, where the Lord himself commanded his disciples that they should love one another. And he said, as I have loved you. And then we went to Romans 12. We studied for a couple of weeks, really, some portions from the book of Romans. Members one of another is one of the things that Paul says to us. And, and as those who are vitally, personally, spiritually united to one another, he said things like this. You need to let your love be genuine, not hypocritical, but the real deal. Let your love be marked by brotherly affection because we're family and families treat one another with an extra special love. Then he said, outdo one another in showing honor. If there's going to be any competition in the body of Christ, that's where it should be. It's not the competition of the world to get ahead or to find an advantage over someone else, but rather the, the competition to outdo one another in showing honor. And finally, in Romans 12, we noted uh, Paul's command to live in harmony with one another. And that takes work because there are things that come up between us. There are things that develop where we we sometimes are a little irritated or impatient with one another, but we work at living in harmony with one another. Then we went to Romans 15. Welcome one another. Despite the differences, we, we remain open-hearted toward one another. We make room for differences of opinion. Some of those opinions are really strong. Some of those opinions are formed, as we noted from Romans 14 and 15, with the view of honoring the Lord. And it's hard for us to reconcile the fact that we may be seated next to someone who believes that honor to the Lord looks a little different from what we think honors the Lord, right? But we make room for differences of opinion. And then Matt led us into 1 Corinthians 11. Wait for one another. That kind of deference that says, specifically when we come to the Lord's table, we're all one. And so there's no one that has a particular advantage uh, over another But even beyond the Lord's table, there's a sense that because we're one, we we don't run ahead, we don't fall behind, we order our lives with a view of those who are around us. And then last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 12 and the command to care for one another. That is, we make it a point to be aware of the needs that are around us and care. Now today's passage in Galatians 5 um, is, is similar in tone and even in focus, but there are a few little differences. And before we get there, I just want to give you an idea of some of the things that are taking place in the church at Galatia. Context is always important for us. And anytime we can, we can look at the details of kind of the story of the setting where the Apostle Paul or whoever the, 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 the Bible writer is, what is he addressing? What is he speaking to? And there are two primary things that I would just call your attention to with respect to the Galatian context. First of all, false teachers had begun to enter that assembly and bring their false teaching, and, and really it amounted to this. Paul describes it as another gospel. Now, that may sound like, well, maybe they were saying, ah, there was really no Jesus Christ, and he wasn't born of a virgin in Bethlehem, and all. Actually, they were were actually saying a lot of the same things related to Jesus, but they were adding things to it. 
And in particular, there was a group that had Jewish roots and they were making a, a huge deal about some of the ceremonial laws and saying, if you want to be saved, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to add things to it. And one of those was circumcision. That's an Old Testament thing that God actually ordained to distinguish His people, Israel, from other nations of the earth. But when Jesus came, He fulfilled all of that ceremonial law. And, and much of it is irrelevant at this particular point. That's why He didn't bring an animal to church this morning. There's no altar that we're going to make a sacrifice to God on because Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. And there's an example. But there are people who are coming in and actually adding something to the gospel. And Paul says it's another gospel and anybody who does this should fall under the judgment and condemnation of God. He uses very strong language in, verse, in chapter 1. Let him be accursed. It's a big deal. Now, he doesn't go into the same kind of details, but when we come into this particular passage, chapter 5, we're also going to note that there was something going on between believers in the church that was destructive to their love for one another. And Paul uses terms to describe the kinds of disagreements while not going into the details of the disagreements, but he uses terms like biting, devouring, and consuming. And as we'll see in just a little bit, those terms are terms that you typically apply to wild animals. It's a very graphic picture. And, and though he doesn't describe the details of what created that kind of conflict, he's addressing it and warning them. Now, it's into that setting, though, that Paul writes a specific command, another one another, and that's what we're going to look at. But, you know, nobody wants to be a part of a group, whether it be a family, a neighborhood, a community, a workplace, or a church family where people continually bite and devour one another with their words and actions, do they? You don't. I don't. That's actually what most of the world lives with daily. And I'm sure that your heart is continually grieved, as my heart is, by a lot of the national conversation right now. I'm just almost daily grieved at this point, and frankly, have stopped paying as close attention. It, it actually begins with the leader of our nation. I'm just so grieved and smitten by much of what he communicates, whether it be through his Twitter account or through press conferences, but it, he, is, he probably is the most egotistical and self-absorbed person I've seen in a long time, although there are many who come close. And, and he just continues to throw things out there that I would say are demonstrations of a biting, devouring, consuming kind of conversation. Unless we pin it all on him and act like nobody else is talking like that, oh, there are lots of other people who take the bait on both sides of that political aisle, Right? but doesn't just wear you out. And some of you may have been committed to a particular political party for a long time, but if this kind of conversation continues, you, you find yourself wanting to distance yourself from it, don't you? I do. Because I'm saying, that's not what I'm about. And I don't want to be a part of a group that just bites and devours and consumes. So we see it in the political realm. We, you, may, you may deal with it in the workplace every day, but God has something different for us. And it's not just a different political party or political leader. It's not just a different strategy for the corporate world or the community planning and, and participation that may go on. It's actually a gospel that confronts our sin head on, that confronts that tendency in all of us to be people who bite and devour and consume one another, confronts it, calls us to repentance, and then begins to transform us and make us a totally different kind of people. 
And God's desire is that out of that gospel work of transformation that he does in us individually, that he would then create a culture of people. And specifically, we can even say his desire is to create a culture here at Gospel Hope Church that is so free and so and secure in his love for us that we in turn make it a free and secure place for one another where there is really the kind of acceptance and love we just sang about. A place where we can be open and transparent about our deepest struggles and know that not only will those things never be used against us to attack us, devour, bite, and consume, but rather that there would be people who would accept us, who would freely forgive us or help us seek God's forgiveness, who would comfort, support, and hold us accountable where there would be this remarkable, unconditional love even while we repent of our sin and wage war on our sin and press on to know Jesus Christ. That's the kind of a family that all of us long to be a part of, and that's the kind of family that God designs for us. So look at Galatians 5 with me, please. Just th three verses for our consideration. Paul writes, You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. God calls us to freedom. Let's talk about that for a moment. That's a remarkable thought, isn't it? You were called, and he uses a term that actually describes this divine authoritative summons. The God of the universe calls you into a state of freedom. He summons you to the privileges and duties and blessing of the Christian life. Now, with that call, though, we need to understand the nature of this freedom because some would want to define freedom in terms of being able to do whatever they want to do. But when God speaks of freedom, he speaks of something of a different nature. Now back at the beginning of this chapter, if you go back to chapter 5, verse 1, you'll notice Paul writing, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now remember, I told you about the Galatian context, and one of the things that Paul is trying to address is the false teaching of these people who want to add something to the gospel. And so that's the yoke of slavery that he's saying, you're free from that. Don't put on yourself anything that God has not called or commanded of you. So that's the specific nature of this. But by the end of this chapter, Paul will be writing about the essential nature of walking with the Spirit, and that's tied to the kind of freedom that he is speaking of here. So while some would view freedom as the ability or privilege of doing whatever he or she wants to do, that's not actually freedom. That ultimately results in chaos and anarchy. I mean, some of your kids want to live that way, don't they? The little ones. It's like, Mom, don't tell me what to do. Dad, I, I, I want to be free. And, and you're trying to teach them that that's actually not what freedom is all about. Well, it's the same with God. I mean, I'm not free to poke you in the eye. And, and you've heard the statements that, that are long through our history. I actually did a little research this week to try to, 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 try to find out where that, that statement and there are different forms of it that have been used by political leaders and writers and authors and just ordinary people like us day to day. But your freedom, your freedom ends, the, the freedom to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. And there's truth in that, isn't there? 
So I'm not absolutely free to just swing my arms any old direction I want, uh, especially if I begin to hurt somebody who's near me. And there's truth in that. From a biblical perspective, freedom, and here's a working definition that I want you to, to just set up. Freedom is actually the spirit-empowered ability and desire to do what one should do. So that's where you need to just actually maybe later this afternoon, just read through the entire chapter of Galatians 5 and see how it moves from, yeah, don't, don't go back to that yoke of slavery. The law was never set up by God to be a means of salvation. And he moves it from that so you're free, but as we're going to see in just a moment, you need to use your freedom for particular things, but true freedom is lived out as you walk in, in the Spirit, as you keep in step with the Spirit. Those are some of the specific phrases that Paul will use. So yes, you're called to freedom, but here's a second point. Look at the text again with me, verse 13. God calls us to serve one another. That's the remarkable thing. He says, you're called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. First of all, positively stated, freedom is the opportunity for service. That little word opportunity has reference to a starting point, a base of operation, if you will. Now, when he uses it in reference to the flesh, he's saying you don't turn your freedom into an occasion for your flesh to, to go to work. What is the flesh? Well, there are several definitions that we could work with. There's a really helpful statement I ran across this week. One of the authors I was, I was reading and, and considering describes the flesh this way. Flesh refers to fallen human nature, the center of human pride and self-willing. Flesh is the arena of indulgence and self-assertion, the locale in which the ultimate sin reveals itself to be the false assumption of receiving life, not as the gift of the Creator, but procuring it by one's own power of living from oneself rather than from God. Now, obviously, that term flesh can be applied to many different things, can it? It can be referring to, you know, what wraps your muscle and, and connective and bone tissue. Paul's not speaking of that physical flesh. He's speaking of something of a spiritual nature. And that's where I think it's helpful for us to just think for a moment about what's really in view. Human nature, actually, apart from Christ. That's your flesh. And if you continue reading through this passage, you'll, you'll see Paul writing that the flesh is opposed to the Spirit. The flesh is the ally of sin. The flesh is the ally of worldliness. The flesh doesn't want to be under the authority of the Spirit of God. And if your flesh had its way, had its freedom, it would actually lead you down a path of destruction. And that's where you see some of those things emerging. Look at verse 16 in chapter 5. The desires of the flesh, that is these sinful or inordinate appetites, they are against the Spirit. Paul says they're opposed to each other. They keep you from doing what you want to do. It may seem at the moment that... that Giving into your fleshly desire is what you really want to do, but Paul is writing in such a way as if to say, that's not actually you. And that's, that's this nature that God hasn't fully redeemed yet, even though you're fully saved. But that flesh, that, that, that spiritual corruption we just kind of carry around with us, not only wants to resist the work of the Spirit, it actually wants to lead us in paths that will lead to our destruction. Keep reading. Look at verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident. 
If you're still a little unsure about what we're talking through, just read verses 19 to 21. And Paul even says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a frightening statement, but it's something all of us should look at soberly. Is your life characterized by the works of the flesh? And that list is not comprehensive. He uses the little phrase uh, toward, the, toward the end, I think it's verse 20 or 21, and such things as these. It's like, this is suggestive, even though it's a pretty long list. If your life is characterized by that kind of fleshly living, that fleshly desire, then the reality is you probably don't know Jesus savingly. He has not begun that work to transform you and change you. So do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But if if this freedom is not an opportunity for the flesh, what is it? It's an opportunity for service. Now notice this, though. Through love, Paul writes, serve one another. So love is the means of our service. If freedom is the opportunity for service, love actually becomes the means of our service. Now I want you to think back a couple of weeks ago to our definition of love as we first of all looked at God as he's revealed to us in the scriptures. God's love is his willful direction toward man involving his doing what he knows is best for us and not necessarily what we desire in that moment. His love is what is behind his gracious rescue of sinners like us. We didn't go looking for God. Not after the fall in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve took off. They tried to clothe themselves, making, making garments to cover the, the shame that they felt now that they were fully exposed. You remember? God comes to them and asks some questions. And, and Adam, trying to explain, says, we were naked and we were ashamed. And God says, who told you you were naked? Sin actually exposed them. And so there they are, trying to cover themselves with fig leaves, and it's an inadequate covering, and it's just like our works of righteousness. They never clothe us properly. What did God do? He sacrificed animals and fashioned for them garments of skin. I'd like to see those garments. I'm sure they were beautifully designed and beautifully fashioned, but God covered them in love. So God, of his own will, moved toward mankind, and he acted in a way that brought benefit to them. So Paul's point is that by means of this God-like love, we too intentionally seek the best for others through love. So that means we not only need to be students of the needs that we see around us, we need to be thinking in terms of biblical truth, what would actually bring benefit to this person. Sometimes it's real easy. Sometimes you say they need a word of comfort. I'm in a position to to provide something physical or material for them that they need. But sometimes the need might go a little deeper. We intentionally seek the best for others, even when they may not want it. And we serve them by this kind of love. There's a lot of that going on here right now. Parents of little ones, and there are lots of little ones here, aren't there? I mean, they're everywhere. You'll step on them if you're not careful. And if you're not paying attention, some of them will run you over. So we've got to be alert every moment we're together, don't we? You know, I watch some of the parents of the little ones in particular just, just actively pursuing them. And it's not easy, is it? Some days you just feel like it was war from the time they woke up until the time they went to bed. And praise God, there's a little bit of an armistice when they finally collapse. 
And I watch some of you wrestle with your little ones, especially as they fight you and have their public meltdowns. And that's what's like, oh, please, not here, not now. Yeah, we've all been through it. It's humiliating, it's frustrating, it's exasperating, it's scary. But you keep battling in faith, don't you? Because you know their heart is at stake. And as parents, it's easy to start thinking that my comfort or my reputation or my security is what's at stake. I just, I listened to the stories Kristen used to tell. She'd go to the grocery store or someplace and it just seems like that's where the worst moments would happen. And maybe not the worst ones, but you're the most exposed. And, and you're thinking that everybody else in the store is like, that's the world's worst parent right here on aisle three. <laughs> and you know in your heart, you care. I mean, you've had conversations with your children before saying, we act like this, we don't act like this. You've disciplined them in private, but somehow they kind of know that, that being in public is a little different. And uh, mom and dad don't come down quite as hard on me because the police will arrest them. <laughs> you just wonder sometimes. But you know, your discipline is part of how they learn, isn't it? And not just that they, they need to meet these particular expectations, it's actually part of how they learn that the God who created them holds them accountable for their sin. It's how they learn that there are consequences for their actions. And ultimately, if they don't come to believe that they are sinners who need forgiveness and who need internal transformation, that is, the, the God who created them actually has to act on their hearts in a way, they're going to continue to be frustrated and, and difficult and challenging. And so let me encourage you, parents, the gospel really is what is preeminently in view and at stake. It, disciplining your child is not simply about behavior modification. It's nice when they conform their behavior to the family rules. But beyond that, as Christian parents, you've got to be thinking in terms of my child needs to come to grips with the fact that, that his heart, her heart, is corrupt. And they need to repent of their sins, put their faith in Jesus Christ, ask him to change them from the inside out. And, and I know in those awful moments where you're in aisle three and the meltdown's incurring, you're not having gospel thoughts. Oh, Lord Jesus, save my child. And what you're thinking is, oh, God, save me. But you know, your love for them makes you act in a way that they don't want to be disciplined at that moment. But if you love them in this particular way and you serve them, as this text teaches us, you're going to press beyond what they actually want at that moment to the thing they really need, and that is the touch of God. And you are the touch of God. And sometimes even when you touch their backside in a really meaningful forceful way. That's God speaking to them saying, you cannot sin without consequences. I remember we would walk our kids through this when they were much younger. We typically try to do discipline uh, in, in our bedroom and um, we'd talk them through it and sometime I'll, I'll walk you through the whole thing but we, we would ask a series of questions, and not always identically, but still trying to walk them through it. And we, but the questions were not, what do mom and dad say about your behavior, but what does God say about it? Trying to get them to recognize that, you know, if, you, if you're angry and you haul off and hit your sibling, God says it's sin. God says it's sin. And teaching them, ultimately, we have to be people who submit to him. 
That's just one component of serving through love. But that term, look at the text with me once again. When God calls us to serve one another through love, he uses a term that actually is terminology of slavery. Something in our nature that doesn't want to be enslaved. And that's good and and right. And I'm not talking about institutional slavery as our country and the world has known it and practiced it. But God is actually calling us to a voluntary service that assumes, if we can put it this way, humanly speaking, the lowest position. A humble heart like our Savior, who's the preeminent servant, that says, how can I serve you? How can I be your slave? We don't take advantage of that in other people. We, We don't treat one another like slaves but we submit ourselves to our Lord. Think about a slave. In that first century context, a slave was one who was in a permanent relation of servitude to another. One author writes, the will of the slave being altogether consumed in the will of the other. If you're a slave in first century Rome, Greece, even the the Middle East, in one sense, you have no will of your own. You don't come to the breakfast table with your master or owner in the morning and say, hey, uh, I've been thinking about some things and I'd like to suggest that today we or that I, no, you just stand there quietly and wait for him to, or her to tell you what the agenda is for the day. It's hard for us to fathom that. But if you think through just a few of the scriptures and they're all through the Old Testament and New Testament where the Lord Jesus is presented as the perfect servant. But he himself said, and this is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His servanthood is seen in the way he gives himself away. That's why Paul wrote in Galatians 2, just a few chapters before our text for this morning, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's his service in action. He gives himself. And now he's calling us to assume the identity and responsibilities of servants in relationship to one another. So let me pause and ask a question. Do you really view yourself as that kind of servant or slave? I don't. I'm just going to tell you straight up. It's it's probably not one of the top five identifiers. If I'm meeting somebody for the first time and they say, oh, Danny, nice to meet you. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I don't know that it's ever occurred to me to say, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ and my family and friends at church but that would actually be accurate. Now, I might tell them where I'm from and who I'm married to and about my kids, where I went to school, you know, sports teams that I'm fans of or hobbies that I enjoy, sites that I've seen, but slave? I mean, wouldn't that be, I mean, that would be weird, but it would be totally disarming if somebody said, hi, you know, I'm, I'm Joe Blow, and you said, hi, I'm Danny Brooks, slave of God, and Slave of you. How can I serve you? If you're like, what? Where's the hidden camera? You know. If truth be told, most of us don't view ourselves as servants of others, but God identifies us as that and calls us to active service. So the question is, how are you serving the people nearest you? 
Because again, it's a one another passage. God wants you to serve him, yes, but that's not primarily what's in view. He's saying serve one another. So who are the one another's around you? And how are you serving them? Look for the needs. That'd be a big step for some of you. Kind of live in your own little bubble. You're not really aware of the needs that are around you, but you need to start developing that awareness. And then as you see a need, you move toward it. Now, for some of you, that'll be scary in and of itself. I, don't, I, I just never know the right thing to say. Well, then maybe you should not focus on using words. Maybe you're wired up to do deeds that would serve other people. Just try it. But take a step. Be willing to fail. And as you do, trust the Holy Spirit to empower your service. That's the really neat thing. Don't forget what we just studied in Romans 12. What we saw again in 1 Corinthians 12. The Spirit of God empowers every one of his people for service. So it's there. And and maybe you pause for a moment and say, oh, Holy Spirit, I'm not really sure what to do right now, but something needs to happen, and I'm gonna take a step of faith right now, and you move toward that person in that need, and and you watch the Lord work. Well, no, go, go back to Galatians 5 and look at verse 14. This is quite remarkable. Remember, again, in the Galatian context, Paul's been talking about the right use of the law. Okay, we haven't studied that out. If we ever do a series on the book of Galatians, by the time we come to chapter five, you'd have, a, you'd have four chapters of context before. But Paul has said a whole lot about the law, right use, wrong use, the abuse of it, some of which I mentioned earlier where people were trying to import Old Testament ceremonial law and say, if you really wanna be saved, you gotta be circumcised. But, but look at what he does right here. This is almost a little surprising. He now says the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Well, what's that word, Paul. You shall love the Lord your God, or you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we know, actually, he's, he's quoting an Old Testament book, Leviticus specifically, but that's part of the summary of the entire law. First, you love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then you love others. He's saying, you, you want to be a law keeper? Love your neighbor. That's been one of the missing pieces in the national dialogue this week. I think most of us are just mortified to think that that immigrant families, you know, whether they've broken our laws or not, but to have families separated, I mean, how grieving. And it was troubling, honestly, to, to hear Jeff Sessions try to import Romans 13 as justification for enforcing the law. The whole context talks about love your neighbor as yourself. It's another passage where Paul brings that word to bear. And I, Chris and I were talking couple days ago. Who knows what really is going on? Okay, so let me just say, I don't speak with all knowledge. I'm just, I'm, I'm very unsettled by the reports and very unsettled that Romans 13 would be used to justify that if that is in fact what is taking place. And it's like, please, if you're going to quote the Bible, at least quote it in a legitimate way. Quote the whole context. But one thing I'm sure of is that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, are called to this love with the hope and confidence that as we love one another in that way, we're fulfilling the law. You see, our commitment to God is never measured in external rituals. The specific one in view here would be circumcision. But it is measured in the way we love one another. We sometimes reduce the Ten Commandments to a list of do's and don'ts, forgetting that there are relationships primarily in view. And the first relationship was with God, and the second is with others in our community. 
As if somehow not worshiping idols is an end in itself. So as long as the mantle over your fireplaces is just clear, you know, of, of any stone or, or metal or wooden images, you're good. Is that, is that what that's all about? No. It's about you don't worship other gods because you worship the one true God. Him only shall you serve, the Bible says. Or somehow that not stealing or killing or committing adultery is separated from the people we live with. But the reality is you can't actually righteously fulfill the Ten Commandments if you live in isolation from other people. The reason I don't take your stuff, stealing, is actually because I love you and value you as an image bearer of God. The reason I don't destroy your life, whether with a weapon or my anger or even my false witness, is because love for you as a fellow human being is preeminent. And because I love you, I don't take your spouse. Or because I love my spouse, I don't break my covenant with her. My love for my neighbor even means I don't even covet his stuff, including his spouse. I mean, think about that. It's all about love. And true freedom, as God has designed and intends, expresses itself in this kind of love. And part of that love is a serving love serving love. Now look at verse 15 and we'll conclude with this thought because there's a warning. It's a strong warning. God warns us of the danger of preying on one another, of destroying one another. You say, preying on one another? Yeah, those, these words, bite, devour, and consume, are frequently associated with predators in non-biblical writings of the first century. They're graphic terms. I, I was even thinking, maybe I should find a a, a photograph of wild animals biting and devouring, consuming. But some of what I found, honestly, I'm thinking, no, not here. Your imaginations are fertile enough. Biting, devouring, consuming. These are terms that suggest wild animals engaged in a deadly struggle. It's not human, and it's certainly not Christ-like. How does it happen? Well, again, in similar ways to some of what we studied before, we, we become more committed to an idea or an opinion than we are to maintaining a loving relationship with someone, and we're willing to go to war over the opinion. Now, I think it's important to qualify something. Paul has actually spoken very directly, if not even harshly. I think you could even say the word Paul has gone on the attack concerning false teaching because truth is at stake. But he does it with a view of loving, of rescuing the people who are coming in, into the bondage, the yoke of slavery that that teaching represents. So, we, so it's good and right for us to go on the offensive, even attacking truth that would destroy people. But even in attacking truth, we do our best to love and care for and protect people. But I don't think that's what's in view. I don't think Paul is saying, hey, lay aside the important discussions concerning truth, and you guys just need to love each other, kind of a soft milk toast thing. No, 
the details aren't before us, but it seems that he is addressing either something that is taking place or something that he is fearful will take place, and that is God's people will turn their, their energy and their frustration, their anger and their bitterness on one another, and as a result begin to bite and devour, maybe with their words, maybe with their actions, but all of it is deadly and destructive. These are words associated with predators. And we have to guard against it. Your, fl- your flesh would rather prey on other people than serve them. My flesh would rather make a kind of meal out of another person's soul than to submit myself at, to, to their service as a, as a slave. Biting words that wound a brother or sister, comments and criticism that take little pieces of the heart and soul until a gaping incurable wound is left, nagging, badgering, harassing, devouring the good reputation of a fellow believer, maybe by impugning their motives to another person, or maybe by questioning the integrity of her mission, just even a suggestion laid out there. Doesn't even have to be a verifiable accusation. It can just be the suggestion that maybe they're not everything that they represent themselves to be. And, and you put a question mark in the mind of somebody else that that would be an example of the biting and devouring. But it's beastly activity. And this kind of beastly activity will, in fact, and inevitably destroy the individual. Mutual destruction, that phrase, consume one another, is graphic. You know, a number of years ago, a man moved to Greenville who had pastored a church in another state for a number of years, and he began to attend our church, and, and we had lunch on, on several occasions, and over the course of those meetings together, he shared with me how several people in the congregation he had left had bitten and devoured, and though he never used these terms, and I think back on this, I would say they eventually consumed him. Because even now at this point, and it's nearly 20 years since he relocated his family and, and I've met him and we talked, he never returned to ministry. He's a good man. Sweet wife, amazed that she didn't walk away from the faith listening to the stories that he told, and she is his wife just patiently and quietly endured. And my heart is just perpetually sad for him because he's a man who's gifted, a man of great abilities, and, and though I never sat under his preaching to know if, if he was a gifted preacher, I suspect he was really good at it. I just, you look at even how God has blessed him and cared for him and prospered him in a different career path now and I think a man of great ability but so bitten, so devoured that, that I think in one respect his ministry was consumed. I wonder what the Lord will say to those people who devoured him when they stand before him one day. I suspect some of them are not even true followers of Jesus. And granted, I've only heard a little slice. I don't have all the facts and God's not gonna ask me even to sit in judgment on them. But I read what Paul says, how seriously he writes these words to us and exhorts and warns and admonishes us. And I think, oh, brothers and sisters, we must devote ourselves to serving one another in love, enslaving ourselves to one another because Christ enslaved himself 
to us so that we would be saved from our sin, given the gift of eternal life, and set on our way to glory. So as we think this through and return to the text, and I just want to put Galatians 5, 13 to 15 on the screen and let you look at those words in conclusion here. I wonder if God is calling you to repent. First of all, of using your freedom as an opportunity for your flesh, selfishly. You've just been living for self. You say, that really touched my heart. Then, Then repent of it. Acknowledge that you have been sinful and rebellious toward God and turn away from it in faith to him. Or maybe secondly, you need to repent of sinful behavior or conversation that is destructive to the body of Christ. Maybe even this week you've had words that have been biting. You've devoured someone. Maybe you put something out on social media that was hurtful to a friend or an associate. Maybe you whispered something in the ear of another person that just began to run down the reputation of a fellow believer. That needs to be repented of. But remember, there are two sides to this coin of of faith, of Christianity. One side is repentance, the other side is belief. And belief is not just a feeling you cultivate in your heart, but belief always gets busy. And so if you're repenting and you're walking away from those things, turning your back on your sin, and you're moving in faith and obedience toward Christ, and I'm going to ask you this question, what, what's the one most significant impression from this text that you felt or just sensed the Spirit of God was impressing on you? It's probably tied to that word serve. And it may even be a particular thing where just as we were working through this, you've been thinking as the Holy Spirit's been impressing your heart, you know what, I, I, need, to, I need to serve so-and-so in this way. Do you have that thought? Then I would say, act on it. Act on it. And if you haven't had a specific thought of how you could serve someone, then just right now, just commit yourself saying, you know what, Lord, if if you'll show me a person with a need, by faith, I'll act on it. It'd be great to see if we could all gather up, huddle up maybe in six or seven days and say, what happened? What did the Spirit of God impress on your heart? Did you act on it? Yeah, I did. I took this little step and... And some of you would say, I saw amazing things. And others would say, you know, the person barely even acknowledged that I did it. Well, the important thing is, what does God think about it? So we want to turn away from our sin and make sure we're not committing any of these grievous sins that are listed here in this text. But we want to get active in service. I'm going to make a couple of suggestions. These are the easy ones. This is the low-hanging fruit, as it were. Sign up lists. Say, really, is that, no, I, it, come on, there's more spiritual stuff out there. Um, I'd be careful, I would not say it's more spiritual. There may be stuff that's actually a little more complicated to organize or administrate, or it's gonna take a little bit more, but, I mean, can you enslave yourself to the congregation and say, yeah, we'll take one of the Saturdays to clean? Yeah. Matt, we might need to print up extra sign-up lists, okay? Because if everybody's obedient, that one sheet is not going to be enough, right? Okay, great. (laughs) Snacks for plant camp. I I didn't look at the list. Did you look at the list? We getting, are there still some blanks there? We could use some more apples, bananas, salty snacks, okay? That's easy stuff, all right? But it's a step, and that would be a huge step for some of you because you've never even thought in terms of, you mean like, like I should buy a bunch of bananas and bring them? Yeah, you should. Because we enslave ourselves to one another. So don't make it too complicated. 
You don't have to go on a big spiritual gifts quest this week. Oh, Spirit of God, show me what my gift of service is. Where's the need? Get busy. Meet it. Let's pray together. Father, we confess to you that our default nature is to serve self. And we repent of a thousand ways we've served self even in this past week. Oh, would you change us? Would you cleanse away that selfish, fleshly passion in us? And would you replace it with a humility that is a beautiful reflection of the servanthood of Jesus Christ and Give us an awareness of the needs that are around us and help each of us to move to them in obedience, in love. Help us to move with that confidence that your spirit is powerfully at work in us and as we take those steps of faith, you're gonna bring blessing and benefit to the people that we reach out to. I think of the parents who are here. Some of them feel like they're just in this exhausting and never-ending struggle with a child. Oh, give them grace to love that child with the same kind of love that you, as our Father in heaven, love us. Sometimes discipline, sometimes sacrifice, always accepting, embracing. And we know for some of them it's exhausting, but may they see that opportunity in the light of the gospel and may you, Spirit of God, empower them anew and afresh to serve those children and lead them, Lord God, lead these little ones to faith in Jesus Christ. We ask that as we have guests come in in another week for this first plant camp, strangers to us, students, adult sponsors, people from all areas of the country and many different walks of life. Oh, give us the heart and mindset of servants so that we would bless them even as they seek to bless us. We pray that our church family would be known in the way that Jesus Christ desires, that by our love for one another, we would verify we are the genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.